Whether you're looking at the bizarre house on the rock in Wisconsin, it is, to my mind, one of the most bizarre, amazing, wild creations in the entire United States. Or hearing organ music being played on stalactites at a cave in Virginia. You look at it and think, how did he think to do that? But I'm so glad that he did. America certainly has some unusual sights. Coming up, the folks from Atlas Obscura take us to a few of America's strangest attractions. We'll also take a closer look at the far-flung territories that kind of are and kind of aren't part of the United States. Of course, these are populated places. They have people and cultures, and too often those people are overlooked by the U.S. government. And hear what it's like to be an American on a guided tour of North Korea. They don't like you. They've been told that you're bad, and but you know, hopefully this is the way that those barriers get broken down, is the travel. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The sun never sets on the American empire. Well, almost anyway. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Doug Mack tells us what he learned about the farthest corners of the USA, where old glory flies next to palm trees in the territories of the Pacific and Caribbean. And Wendy Simmons tells us about the surreal fantasy world she was shown on a holiday in North Korea. There are plenty of other weird places on this planet that don't come with so much political intrigue. Dylan Thuris co-founded the Atlas Obscura website, and it features thousands of such entries to the most curious hidden wonders and marvels all around the world. Editor Ella Morton got to pick 700 of them to feature in their new book, which has shot to the top of the bestseller charts for travel literature. They join us now for a look at some of their favorite Atlas Obscura sites across the USA. Dylan, Ella, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So you launched Atlas Obscura in 2009 to create a catalog of people, places, and things that inspire a sense of wonder. You wrote, it's to inspire wonderlust as much as wanderlust. What do you mean by this? I, I think what we're trying to do here is, is not just create sort of like a bucket list. You know, some people say, oh, this is a bucket list of the weirdest places in the world. And, and you could use it like that. But hopefully... The idea is that these places really are everywhere. They're both far-flung and in your own backyard. And as you look through this and get a sense how common these kind of incredible hidden stories are, the hope is you start to kind of explore the world in that way. You even look at your own hometown and think, what's here that I've sort of just been neglecting to go and examine and experience? So you, with your website, atlasobscura.com, you collect all of these crazy and fascinating insights and then edit them together into the book. Ella, tell us just briefly how that process works. Well, we began with looking at all the places that we've collected on the website, which at this point now is up to 10,000. So we had to look at whittling that down to 700 places and people and things to include in the book. And we started with our sort of greatest hits, which is the giant flaming hole in the Turkmenistan desert and the house on the rock in Wisconsin that has this magical lit up carousel that some of us have been to in our childhoods and remembered since then. And so it was about having this mix of things that really made an impression that are strange and wondrous. That's a sort of sample platter of what Outs Obscura has to offer. Okay, so let's take a romp through America. I'm just going to bring up a few themes because I know the book is gathered in sort of themes. And uh, I'd love to hear your favorite memories or your favorite experiences or things you want to be sure that people know about when they're dreaming about America Obscura. First of all, we're a car, you know, a road trip kind of society. Let's talk about a few roadside attractions. What are some of the most quirky roadside attractions we should know about? Well, I'll, I'll actually talk a little bit about the one that Ella just mentioned called House on the Rock in Spring Green, Wisconsin. 
And I went there when I was 12 with my parents on a kind of classic American road trip. We went to the Corn Palace uh, in South Dakota and Wall Drug. And so on this trip, we went to a place called House on the Rock. And it is, to my mind, one of the most bizarre, amazing, wild creations in the entire United States. And to give a sort of quick description of what's in there inside of this house, and house is really the wrong word because it takes about six hours to walk through the entire sprawling set of buildings kind of hidden in the forest. Inside is, as Ella mentioned, the world's largest carousel with the world's most diverse set of carousel animals. There is a sculpture of a squid fighting a whale that is the size of the Statue of Liberty that's inside the house. There's a giant hallway that's made to look as if it goes on forever, the Infinity Room, as it's called. Anyway, it is a truly fantastical place. So and, that's and a, where exactly is that again? Spring Green, Wisconsin. You mentioned goofy dinosaur parks in the book. Uh, there's a number of dinosaur parks, aren't there? There are. They're um, scattered across the United States. There's a few particularly good ones. What's your favorite? There one? are. There are the one that stands out. There, there are the Cabazon dinosaurs, which are featured in the film Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It's this giant uh, apatosaurus, I believe it's now called. And that's another thing that's a sort of roadside attraction. People know it from having driven through California as kids. And there's no actual artifacts or archaeological digs. It's just plain old, goofy, modern dinosaurs to entertain the kids on a road trip? Well, so this one is kind of interesting because in the mid-1990s, a bunch of creationists established a museum and gift shop in the belly of one of the dinosaurs. <laughs> How about <laughs> um, other roadside attractions? What comes to mind? I, I like the you've got a chapter about the largest ball of twine. Oh, sure. That's a very competitive category, actually. There's there's multiple large balls of twine, and it, it yeah, depends you, on whether you, you're... You qualify this one, rolled by one person. Right. So that is that is one, and then there's another that's been a group project. And obviously, America has this kind of obsession, shared, interestingly, with Australia, of giant things, of building enormous versions of things. Mm. And I think it may be just about having kind of a lot of space. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by uh, the co-founder of Atlas Obscura, Dylan Thuras, and the chief editor, uh, Ella Morton. Their website is atlasobscura.com. Talk for a minute about natural wonders and land art. You know, there's the famous spiral jetty at the Great Salt Lake in Utah. The 1970s produced a particular explosion of, of land art, these gigantic installations and other kinds of, of large-scale installations. There's one, actually, that just got finished, this gigantic project called City out in Nevada. It's monumental. I mean, it is it is the size of a small town, basically, and will be there in 1,000, 2,000 years. I mean, these things are made, in a sense, to last the test of time because they're just it exactly? huge. It's these giant earthen works. It's huge pyramids of packed earth, giant trenches. You know, there's other works like this, like Double Negative is this enormous trench sort of canyon that's been dug into the ground. You know, you talked about the city. I was fascinated by California City. I didn't realize that there was a planned city 100 miles north of L.A. that was actually built to rival Los Angeles, but apparently it never got off the ground. Technically, by geographical scale, I believe it is still the third largest city in California. But it's got a population just of a, a handful of people. Of a few thousand, it was designed as this car-centric mega city. Except uh, built, you know, largely in the in the 1960s, it was out in the Mojave Desert, and for reasons that I think now seem obvious, people were not incredibly thrilled to move their lives out to the edge of the Mojave Desert. So now it sits there. It's been, you know, roads and cul-de-sacs are all laid out, 
except there are basically no no houses there. So it's like this giant, you know, it almost looks like a circuit board mm. if you see it from Google Earth. These are kind of places you'd never know about if you didn't do a little studying ahead of time. You've got a chapter called Castles Without Kings. And, you know, we always go to Europe for castles, but there are some crazy castles in the United States of America. Yeah. One of the other places I think I would recommend as as one of the great kind of roadside stops or a place worth making a special journey to is Bishop Castle in Rye, Colorado. It is a 16-story medieval-ish castle built by one man uh, over the last 40 years, hauling stones kind of by hand. You're basically free to explore this entire place. Though You know, you can go up to the very top of it, and at the top are these wrought iron welded sphere and a little bridge you can cross. You know, there's a guest book that basically you're supposed to sign before you go in that says, if I should fall to my death, I accept responsibility mm-hmm. for that. And it's, it's definitely a place where you feel like, you know, you kind of are responsible for your own safety. But in a way, that is part of what makes it a, an incredible, unusual place. And, and part of it's, for me, part of why I enjoyed exploring it. It really it is like the pinnacle of American outsider art. It's funny because in your book you have the warning, Atlas Obscura was written in the spirit of adventure and readers are cautioned to travel at their own risk and obey all local laws. Some of the places described in this book are not open to the public and not meant to be visited without appropriate permissions. So there are a few places that are fun to know about but a little dangerous to actually visit. That is correct. Yeah, and that's that's sort of part of the philosophy of this book is that we realize that not everybody can get to all 700 places or even maybe 100 places, but even just knowing that these things are out there and these people are creating these castles and outsider art projects and, you know, being so creative and innovative and looking at the world in a different way, that inspires us in itself. Yeah, I'm inspired just by reading the book. Dylan Thuris co-founded the Atlas Obscura website to pique our curiosity for the hidden wonders of our world. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Dylan and Chief Editor Ella Morton are telling us about some of their favorite sites in the USA. Their best-selling book features hundreds of the most unusual places you can visit on every continent. There's more on their website at atlasobscura.com. Take me to the most mind-blowing place that you can actually visit that you would really highly recommend somebody visit. Well, there's a place called Luray Caverns in Virginia that actually contains the world's largest musical instrument. If you go there, you'll see what looks like a console for a church organ. And it it looks kind of strange to have that inside a cave, but what you don't see is that in the 1950s, a guy named Leyland Sprinkle wired five miles worth of cable between that central console and a bunch of different stalactites that were different sizes, so that when they were struck, they would make a certain tone. They would act as the pipes for this church organ. Mm. He called it the stalic pipe organ. He used to play it himself, but now it plays automatically. But it's just, it's one of these things where you look at it and think, how did he think to do that? But I'm so glad that he did. And you can go there and actually see it being played? Yeah. Wow. And Dylan, what's your recommendation? I'm going to talk about a place that actually I kind of hope will get saved, because right now it's sitting basically abandoned in Jackson, Mississippi. And it's a place called the Mississippi River Basin Model. And it is the greatest scale model perhaps ever built. Uh, It was built by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers starting during World War II. took a very long time to build because basically what it is is a giant scale model of the Mississippi River Basin. And it was built at a time when they didn't understand how to predict flooding. And so one of the problems is the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers would put up a levee 
and it would just make a flood somewhere else. So they sort of said, okay, how do we fix this? Hmm. And that literally meant building a giant hydrological model. So in this park in Jackson, Mississippi, is the remains of this model where they used to be able to pull a crank and flood this entire enormous plain. It's eight miles of tiny little streams that are perfect to scale representations of the Mississippi River Basin model. So, and oh. it actually did help them, yeah. uh, you know, solve some of these issues. Although by the time it was finished in the late 60s, in 1966, computer modeling was right around the corner. So mm-hmm. the full model, sort of the finished model, was only in use for about six years. Can you Ca- visit it today? Uh, you can. You can. And it actually it needs help. Uh, it's sort of sitting there waiting to be given its proper due and In glory. Jackson, Mississippi. That's right. All right. Dylan Thuris and Ella Morton, uh, best wishes with your work. And uh, if people want to learn more about Atlas Obscura, you can browse the website, atlasobscura.com. Dylan and Ella, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks so much, Rick. There were times when Wendy Simmons just couldn't hide her inner skeptic while being shown the sights in North Korea. We'll hear about her implausible vacation to the strangest country on Earth in just a bit. But first, Doug Mack explains to the rest of America how Guam, American Samoa, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands all contribute to the nation's identity. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. How far can you get from the United States and still be technically in America? It's a fascinating idea. And travel writer Doug Mack has ventured across the globe to explore American territories. Those are the far-flung outposts of our nation that may fly the American flag, but they're not exactly what most people think of as America. Doug's written about his encounters in places like American Samoa, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands in a book called The Not-Quite-States of America. Doug Mack, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So it was interesting in your book, you you mentioned the sun never sets on the American empire, at least in the summer. How is it that the sun never sets on the American empire? If you look at the the way that the U.S. territories are flung about the globe, the furthest east point is St. Croix, which is in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and the furthest west point is Guam. And, you know, the Pacific Ocean is a very large place that people can't really fathom. But to put it in perspective... Guam is another seven and a half hours flying west from Honolulu. Um, Mm. So it's pretty far west. It's closer to China and Japan than it is to Honolulu. So that is the expanse of the American empire. I've done the math. It's not quite enough where the sun never sets, if you want to get really technical, um, depending on the time of year. But certainly in June, that can be said. Yeah. Now, we're talking about, in your book, just features these little, you know, there's Puerto Rico, which is substantial, what, three and a half million people. But a lot of these are pretty much little specks of islands scattered around. And it seems like there's two zones. There's the Caribbean and the mid-Pacific Ocean. Describe, in general, what are these territories and outposts of the United States? So there are five of them right now. Uh, That number has fluctuated over the years, but right now there are five. And in the Caribbean, there's Puerto Rico, which most people know about, at least a little bit, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is, of course, different from the British Virgin Islands. And then in the Pacific, we have American Samoa, which is south of the equator in Polynesia. And then we have uh, Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands, which are in Micronesia, north of the equator, pretty far west. So those are the five different territories, and they'll have different identities, obviously, and different political distinctions, but those are the outposts of the United States. Is that it? There's five? I thought there was a bunch of little tiny um, atolls and specks and different kinds of... Are they just not uh, technically Those are the minor outlying islands. 
There are about a dozen of them, and they're really territories. They don't have a permanent population, although sometimes they have scientific researchers and things like that. But yeah, there are about a dozen of these little atolls and outcroppings uh, in the Caribbean and the Pacific, and many of those were claimed in the Guano Islands Act of 1856, which is a, a fascinating little bit of history that really started the United States on the path toward overseas expansion. Okay. Now, this is not contiguous USA. This is land that's just speckled all over the place. Do most of these have uh, origins in military history? Yeah, exactly. Well, so the, the minor outlying islands, this Guano Islands Act, came about because the United States was having an agricultural crisis in the 1850s and desperately needed fertilizer. And so the U.S. basically said, you know what? We know that there are all these islands around that have all this guano, which makes a great fertilizer. So we're going to start claiming them and saying they're ours. And we went out and mined all of these places. So what is it? A boat goes over there? A, a sailboat goes over there and, and they just row ashore and they dig up all this bird poop and bring it back to the United States? That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, there are these places that have, it's <laughs> thousands of years of accumulated bird poop and hundreds and hundreds of tons. And if you look at satellite imagery or things like that, you can still see these ghost towns and in some cases abandoned railroads that were set up by these miners in the 1850s. And these were the USA's first places that we actually claimed overseas, you know, beyond the North American continent. Huh. And nobody else really wanted them because they didn't have the industrial wherewithal to collect it, you know. Oh, no. Everybody else wanted them, believe oh, so me. We, um, we had the muscle yeah, to get it. We had the muscle to get there first. That's what the Guano Islands Act of 1856 was about. Okay. It was about saying, this is ours now and we're going to go claim it. There was competition for these places. But then that also set the groundwork for overseas expansion into these inhabited islands. So, during the, the Civil War, President Lincoln tried to purchase the Danish West Indies, what we now know as U.S. Virgin Islands, from the Danish. And it didn't work out then, although uh, the U.S. did go back in 1917 and purchase what are now the U.S. Virgin Islands. And then in 1898, uh, we have the Spanish-American War, which is when the U.S. is really sort of flexing its muscles and trying to become a global power. And that included trying to emulate these previous uh, existing empires like Spain and Britain. Huh. So the Spanish-American War was in part about so-called rescuing these places from the Spanish Empire, the idea being that sort of the Spanish were this big, bad, evil empire, and the United States is going to come and liberate them. And, and then the U.S. comes, and so we take over Guam and uh, the Philippines and Puerto Rico, of course, and oh, so that, a little place called Guantanamo Bay. That's interesting because they are formerly Spanish colonies, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. But the U.S. was really trying to follow in the footsteps of the Spanish and, and become a global power through empire building. So were we actually saying, okay, I know it's crummy to be under a colonial rule of Spain. You can be under the colonial rule of the United States and we're nicer, but you're still going to be under our rule. That is exactly right. That's did, exactly did people generally go for that? I mean, did the local populations go, yeah, let's get rid of these Spanish conquistadors and, and let the Americans be our conquistadors? Yeah, absolutely. In some cases, Puerto Rico, again, it's the, it's the largest territory. It's the place that people know about. There had already been sort of a, a revolution brewing on and off in Puerto Rico. And Spain actually offered uh, Puerto Ricans representation in the Spanish government. And there were all these sort of concessions to try to put the minds of people at ease. And then the U.S. comes in in 1898 with the Spanish-American War. And the U.S. says, hey, we're going to liberate you. And a lot of people were sort of initially receptive to that. You know, the, the U.S. is coming and liberating us. But then things didn't quite turn out as they had hoped. You know, they didn't get that representation that they wanted in the U.S. government. And in fact, in 1912, a contingent of Puerto Rican leaders went to Washington to meet with President Taft, and they had dinner with him, and then they retired to the other room to talk to him, and he fell asleep. 
And that's sort of a metaphor for the whole the whole experience. Well, that's kind of what I'm thinking. It's like, is it really worth the trouble? I mean, the United States is 300 million people. We produce $15 trillion of stuff a year. And we got 4 million people on these little disparate specs. Right. And is it worth the trouble? Why do we even bother? Why don't we just say, you guys, go on your own? It's a really good question. The original reason was not just to build an empire, but also that these places had a strategic geographic location. So in the case of the Virgin Islands, for example, it was about having a port within the general vicinity of the Panama Canal, which had recently opened. Uh, In the case of American Samoa, it was a port that would be on the way to Sydney, Australia, on this trading route so you can go there and, and get your fuel. But what we have too often forgot about is, of course, these are populated places. They have people and cultures and too often those people are overlooked in this discussion and certainly overlooked by the U.S. government throughout history, including now. I think that'd be something we should talk about. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Doug Mack. He's logged some 30,000 miles to explore the far-flung territories of the United States, and these range from American Samoa and Guam to Puerto Rico and the American Virgin Islands. Doug writes about what he learned in these farthest outposts of the United States in his book called The Not-Quite-States of America. His website is douglasmack.net. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Ed's calling in from Valencia in California. Hi, Ed. Hi, Rick. Hi, Doug. I've been to all the territories except American Samoa, and I just wanted to say that one of the most intriguing, one of the most historic, and one of the most beautiful is the island of Saipan and also the island of Guam. And uh, the locals have something there that just is, is an amazing creation, and that is something called Sinadini. And what I discovered was that each family on the islands creates their own special condiment, their own special sauce for whatever they decide to cook. And it could be fish, it could be beef, pork, chicken, anything. And they use this sauce basically as a condiment to go with it. And it can be as hot and spicy as you wish, and it can be as mild as you wish, or it can be just medium. But usually it contains ingredients such as... Uh, peppers or onions or garlic or soy, and it's just uh, a phenomenal creation, and I really, really enjoyed trying that when I was there. That sounds great. You know, I have to confess, I, I didn't have that. I had a lot of other really, really good food on, on Guam in particular, and also Saipan, but I didn't try that one. In your travels, Ed, of all the places, uh, these small, um, relatively obscure little American territories overseas, what was your favorite one to visit from a tourism point of view? I would have to say the island of Saipan. Um, I would take my family back there uh, once a year if I could afford it and if I didn't mind a long journey. It is it is just a magnificently beautiful island. It's historic. It has a museum there that uh, you know basically describes the American invasion during World War II when uh, the Americans invaded. I believe it was 1944 when they took huh. the island back from the Japanese. And and there's some delightful, wonderful local tourist sites to see. And, of course, uh, on the northern part of the island, the the tragedy was that when the Americans invaded, there was uh, two large cliffs. They called them Suicide Cliff Uh. and Bonsai Cliff, where Japanese civilians, unfortunately, took their own lives because they didn't want to be captured. Oh, my goodness. And those are very moving, and there are tributes to them on those those cliffs. uh, And there's beautiful shrines and many, many Japanese tourists that come there to pay their respects. So there's history, there's nature, and there's uh, local culture to enjoy on Saipan. Absolutely. Highly recommended. Just a beautiful, beautiful place. Hey, Ed, thanks for your call. You're quite welcome. Good talking to you all. Yes, happy travels. And Paul has emailed us from Santa Barbara in California, and, and Paul writes, I was lucky enough to visit American Samoa twice when I was a naval officer. 
Over 25 years ago, the island was absolutely beautiful, and the people of the territory were gracious and welcoming. Doug, when we think about these islands, it's so fun to hear from from Ed and from Paul about the culture that is there and, and the welcome we can receive. Let me just ask you a thumbnail description of the visitor's experience and what distinguishes these destinations. Can you uh, just review those for us as a traveler? Sure. Um, you know, obviously, from a visitor perspective, the big draw for all of these places is the sun and the beach and the hiking. So for Puerto Rico, you know, I think most people who are visiting are going to go to San Juan and the old San Juan, which is about a square mile of historic Spanish colonial architecture and wonderful museums and shops and restaurants. Incredible um, fort there. The fort there is just oh, like gosh. nothing I've ever seen. Yeah, it's huge. And you know, as with many of these places, just amazing history. If you go there, be sure to, to read all the signs and find out what happened there. Yeah. And then the U.S. Virgin Islands. Again, you know, I think a lot of people go to the Virgin Islands. They're going to the resorts or the, the capital city, which is Charlotte Amalia, which is Danish colonial architecture. And again, all these winding passageways and stuff. It's really cool to wander so around the Virgin there. I- the American Virgin Islands have a Danish colonial heritage. That is kind of unique. <laughs> exactly. All right, and then heading over to the, uh, to the Pacific. Sure. So American Samoa actually has very few tourists who end up there. It's far removed from the tour centers that most Americans think about. But if you do go there... The thing to do, I think, is go hiking in the National Park of American Samoa. The trails are just stunning. There's this whole ridgeline that traces the harbor of the capital, Pongo Pongo. And you can go on this path along the ridgeline, and the views are stunning. The most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life is the view from the top of this mountain into this little village called Vatia. And the mm-hmm. way that the, that the hills kind of roll down and there's a little cove and the, you know, the sea is kind of rolling in and there's this little village right tied up against the cove. Mm. You know, the, the words don't really do it justice, but seeing it was just mm. truly awe-inspiring to me. And finally Guam. Um, and finally, yeah, Guam uh, and, and the Northern Mariana Islands, likewise. These are two places that have really rich history, both the native traditions, but then also the, the World War II history in both places. You know, there you'll be driving along and there's a museum, or in some cases, there's even just like a tank sitting in the water mm-hmm. or by the side of the road. Both Saipan and, and Guam, the whole islands were battlegrounds during World War II, and you can't really turn a corner without seeing remnants of that. Mm-hmm. If you consider all of these places, Doug, which one of them would, when you get to the local culture, would be the, the most exotic compared to what we think of as American? I hesitate to use the word exotic, but it's... But just distinct or different. Yeah, dis- distinct, you feel right. Like you're, not um, in, you're not in Kansas, you know. Right, Which one's exactly. the farthest away from American? <laughs> the farthest away from... I'd say that the, the island that has the cultural experiences farthest removed from what I think of as sort of standard Americana would be American Samoa. People live in villages, and there's a particular hierarchy to how the village is organized. Each village is led by uh, some people called Matais, and they mm. meet in a building called a fale, and they have some traditional ceremonies. And it's sort of, there's a lot mm. of these cultural traditions that, you know, date back millennia that are really ongoing. It sounds more like Papua New Guinea than, than the United States. Right. Well, so what's interesting is that right now, so a lot of people live in a house now that's like a cinder block, sort of American post-war housing that you might see many places. Mm-hmm. But then attached to that will be this this fale hut. And mm-hmm. so the outdoor place, this fale, which uh, has no walls but a roof and sort of a, like a domed roof, 
that'll be sort of the living quarters. And then this sort of more traditional, what you think of as American style house has the bedrooms and the bathroom and things like that. So there's Mm -hmm. this sort of split personality and character to the house. And I think that is true of a lot of parts of Samoan culture. You know, you'll be walking down the street and you'll you'll see someone and you'll talk to them and they're talking about American football, which is also mm-hmm. very popular there. But then they might also talk about some of these cults or traditions. So it's really this this split, which is really fascinating. And people don't feel, at least people I've talked to, don't really feel like they're being pulled apart. They really feel like they are equally American and Samoan. But mm-hmm. to the American observer, when you're seeing some of the Samoan stuff, it certainly feels like you're not in, in the Midwest anymore. Right, yeah, yeah, for sure. Doug Max, our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He provides a fuller picture of what comprises the United States by getting a close-up view of the nation's far-flung territories. His book is called The Not-Quite States of America. We have a link with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Now, we're talking 4 million people here, 80% of them in Puerto Rico. Are they American citizens? Can they vote? Do they pay taxes in general? <laughs> That complicated, really complicated. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So in four of the five territories, they are American citizens. In American Samoa, by birth, you are an American national. You're not an American citizen. And your passport is different and your rights are different. And even if you move to the mainland USA, you cannot vote for president because you're not a U.S. citizen. But you're not really an immigrant. So either. American Samoa is the, the least technically American of right. the group. Right. But, you know, but the others are full citizens? They are full citizens, but with sort of an asterisk in that if you live in the territory, you know, you can't vote for president. Uh, You have a congressperson who you vote for who then goes to Washington, D.C., but can't actually vote on anything on the floor of the House. And that's the same for all of these uh, territories. It's the same for all of them. Yeah, all five. And so you don't really have a true political voice. And ultimately, Congress has full jurisdiction over any law that happens in Mm. any territory. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways, they're sort of second-class citizens in terms of rights. And in a lot of ways, they're just used by us because we need a place for, not bird poop anymore, but a place to, to, <laughs> to um, have a strategic uh, outpost for our military so we can keep the trade lines open. And Right, military and, and tourism. That's right. All right. Hey, Doug Mack, thanks so much. In your book, The Not-Quite States of America, it's a fascinating look at a part of our, our country that we really uh, underappreciate. Just to close things off, what's the future for our, quote, empire, these little outposts? Well, you know, if you ask the people in any given territory, you're going to get a range of answers about some people want independence, some people want statehood, some people actually are okay with the status quo for various reasons. I think that the future, for starters, just needs to have, they need to have more rights. There is an organization called the We the People Project right now that's working on getting them voting rights. They were working on trying to get citizenship for American Samoans and ultimately that failed, the, the Supreme Court declined to review their case um, in 2016. I hope, though, that at least we can take some of these steps to give them more rights in terms of uh, their political voice in Washington, D.C., uh, in terms of more economic investment, and also just more awareness. You know, I think it's a really a shame that people who live in the States generally don't even understand that these places exist and what the contributions of their citizens uh, have been to the United mm. States as a whole and their cultural contributions. And, and clearly they do contribute to our well-being and they're, they're part of the family. Oh, absolutely. They are as American as any of us and you know we, mm. we should celebrate them and, and understand more about them. That's a great message. Doug Mack, thanks for sharing uh, this insight into a dimension of the United States that really deserves a little better understanding. In your book, The Not-Quite-States of America, fascinating read. Again, thanks a lot and happy travels. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Even the most adventurous traveler will admit that there are a few countries out there that come with a unique set of risks for outsiders. But that didn't deter Wendy Simmons on her quest to eventually visit every country on Earth. She tells us about her surreal vacation in North Korea. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. If there was a contest for the most bizarre country on Earth, Wendy Simmons knows that North Korea would win hands down. Wendy's already been to more than 80 countries in her goal to visit every nation on Earth. That's before her trip to North Korea, which made her feel like Alice through the looking glass. Wendy writes about her experiences in her book called My Holiday in North Korea, The Funniest Worst Place on Earth. Wendy, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you so much for having me on. So, North Korea, when did you go and uh, why? Uh, I was there in late June of 2014, and as someone who really loves to travel and likes adventure, I was seeking a unique experience, and North Korea delivered, to You say talk the least. about unique. Now, North Korea, technically, I, I guess it's open to tourists, but how is it, it open is. to tourists? You know, they opened the country to tourists, I believe, in late 2013, and uh, they did so primarily to earn uh, outside revenue. They, you know, they are short mm-hmm. of cash. They have no economy to speak of and no currency. And, you know, it's easy to get in. People are really um, have a real misconception about that. You work through agencies that are based in China, and they have relationships with the Korean travel company. It's called KITC. And they organize all the logistics for you and facilitate a visa, and you fly to Beijing. And the Korean government will not issue you a visa until 24 hours in advance. So you fly to China not knowing if 100% you're going to give it, you know, be issued mm. the visa. Mm-hmm. And then you're in. You know, it may be different for other people, but for me, it was really quite straightforward and simple. You go to China, and then it's sort of a, a module of a China trip, kindly, and you're hermetically sealed. There. <laughs> you are. <laughs> you know, the one interesting thing, though, is that you, um, for your visa application, you have to specify what you're going to do for every single hour of the day, for every day that you're there, before you arrive. Hmm. So your, iten- your itinerary is planned to the hour before you get there. You went privately as opposed to a group, but in Correct. a sense, you, mm-hmm. you had a private tour. I mean, you... I had a you, private tour. Yeah, you, have, you can't you go to, alone into that country. So you, one way or another, you have to go on a tour. Either you can have your own private tour with your private minder slash guide, or you can right. go with a group of people and have the same exactly. kind of constraints. So you chose to go privately. Did that give you any more freedom than if you were with a group? Oh, I think absolutely. And, you know, that's borne itself out in talking to people who have been and also just seeing the type of constraints that were put upon the press corps that was there for the Congress that the North Koreans held. You know, when you're in a large group, they're paying close attention. They're moving you from place to place. It's a lot more controlled. And as a single person with two minders, and I was there for, you know, a prolonged period of time. Most people are there for two, three days, maybe five, and I was there for 10. You know, I was more at a certain point in time, you know, with two girlfriends for as much as one can be girlfriends with two North Korean handlers, but they were just normal people after a while and they were Mm -hmm. tired and I was tired and we were aggravated with one another and they weren't paying as much attention towards the end of the trip as perhaps they should have been at different times. And so... I think, you know, I was given access to more of the day-to-day life and had better conversations than I perhaps could have had I been one of 30 people in a group. So I definitely think I had a more intimate experience. I would think almost anybody going to Korea is going to be at odds with their minders because people go to Korea to connect with Korea. 
and Korea lets you in to get hard currency but not let you connect with Korea and just show you staged uh, sort of dimensions of North Korean society. And, you know, in all fairness, the agency I worked through, they, you know, they were discouraging of me going for as long as I did and also going on my own. And I understand now why, because the attention is really focused on you. And that makes it a much more difficult trip emotionally. You know, you're just, just you and these handlers. And it's not so much a vacation as it is an indoctrination into the cult of Kim. You know, you are talked to at all times, propaganda, propaganda, propaganda. And it's very exhausting. And as you alluded to, you know, you're there to learn and learn about the country, and they're there to obfuscate the truth. Right. So you're sure. at odds at all times. But on the other hand, if you're the kind of person who really wants to understand as much as one can the place where you are, then being a single person is the way to go. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Wendy Simmons. Her book is My Holiday in North Korea. My <laughs> holiday, it sounds like my experience in North Korea. And uh, Wendy, when, when you mentioned your, your minders, you had two, and they were sort of guides slash minders. You mentioned, right. you, you call one the older handler, and uh, what was the other one called? Fresh handler. Fresh she was handler. fresh at her job. <laughs> <laughs> so describe our, your handlers, and what was your dynamic with them? It was very complex. I had uh, two handlers, as you say, and a driver, and they're with you at all times. And that is to say that when you arrive at the airport and come through immigration, they meet you, and you are with them at all times unless you are alone in your hotel room, until you are returned to the airport. So during the day, I could not even go to the bathroom without one of my handlers coming with me. These were complex women. These are people who have been fed rhetoric from the day they could understand Korean, that I'm the enemy, that my country is terrible, that I'm, you know, America's at the root of all their problems, and that their country is superior in every way to every other country in the world. Did they actually call oh, you yeah. American oh, imperialist? Oh, they, oh, 100%, right to my face. And they called me an American imperialist and told me they hated my country. You know, and then here I come, and I'm healthy and happy, and I'm telling them stories that are in absolute contradiction to everything they've known and seen and heard. And this has got to be problematic for these women. You know, in the case of Older Handler, she in particular, I think, had had a taste of the outside world. Her husband purportedly was a diplomat. She had been a businesswoman at one point. And, and by the way, understand that the guides are at the top of society. You know, these are already people who live in Pyongyang, which entitles them to riches and a lifestyle that no one else in the country enjoys. And then to be the ones selected to deal with outsiders, they are really the top of the top. Mm -hmm. So... You know, they're interacting with me, their their whole world is being shaken up, and, uh, you know, in the book I talk about the experience I imagine being similar to what the prisoners on Alcatraz, you know, used to say, that it was not so much their incarceration, but hearing the people in San Francisco mm. that made them so crazy. And um, so, older handler, I think, you know, she and I, our relationship was very vexed. We sort of hated, liked each other. We were like frenemies. She drove me crazy. She was very, very strict. You know, I think she had attained a certain level of privilege that she didn't want to compromise, but knew there was something more going on. And I represented a lot of what she wanted and hated. And um, Fresh Handler was extremely sweet and diffident and young. And she had, too, likewise been exposed to American culture in university. But she, unlike older Handler, was more sincerely interested. And I think... Um, you know, would want to come to New York if she'd had the chance. And she and I have formed a closer bond and um, I think would have been friends in a different set of circumstances. 
you mentioned older Handler had mastered the art of indirect response. What do you mean by that? Oh, my goodness. She was the most well-media-trained human being on the planet. She put every politician in America to shame. She could not be shaken from message if the you know her life depended on it. You know, she was trained in what to say and what not to say, and that's all she'd say. You know, she was giving nothing away. She just was flawless in terms of what wow. uh, she was oh. willing to divulge. What an experience. I mean, you must have felt like, well, like you talk about, it was uh, going through the looking glass, right, into a different... It really was. You mentioned uh, if it's raining, they say it's not raining. <laughs> they say it's not raining. They either lie... Or they don't, you know, if all uh, if all else fails, they just pretend you're not talking. No, you, you wrote, seeing is not believing. Uh, <laughs> it's not they went believing. To, like, they went to ludicrous extents to stage things for you. The cover of your book is this wedding couple, and they look like they've been beaten and then dressed up. <laughs> and that probably was, you know, real. And the, you know, it was that was sort of the conundrum the whole time because you're sort of faced with this, you know, these two impossible choices that... You know, would a country really go to this much work to try to make um, the impossible possible for one person? It just seemed Mm -hmm. so insane that they would put all the effort in to try to convince me Mm -hmm. that things are normal, let alone, you know, all the other visitors. And I guess, you know, one of the things that was so different with this experience in other places and why I had so much trouble and struggle, you know, with it being the worst place is I've certainly been to other countries that are far more impoverished or at least the same and, you know, or have corrupt governments or have all the same elements that make this country bad, you know, also equally bad. But the difference here is that the entire country, whether they want to or not, are complicit in this sort of grand ruse. You Mm. know, no one admits that there's anything wrong. They're not allowed. Whereas, you know, if you're in Ukraine, for example, and the roads are terrible and you're driving and Ukrainians are the first to say, oh, our government stole all the money. That's why the roads are terrible. But you're driving down a terrible road in North Korea, and they'll say, isn't our road perfect? (laughs) Our our great leader made the road perfect, and, and all the men who built it are heroes. Wendy Simmons says she won't stop traveling until she's visited every country on Earth. She's written My Holiday in North Korea, the funniest worst place on Earth, about her guided tour in Pyongyang. She includes photos and blogs about her adventures at wendysimmons.com. Wendy, talk more about staging, how they would engineer crowds. Yeah, you know, I would arrive every place and there'd be no one there. And then within five minutes or ten minutes, an enormous group of people would show up walking in lockstep. You know, usually like five people across. I have photos of this in the book. And as if, you know, spontaneously they were arriving. So, for example, at the Fun Fair, which is this exceedingly depressing amusement park that they have. They have them in a couple of different cities and a few in Pyongyang. So you arrive at the amusement park. It is completely empty. And 10 minutes later, 500 adults, by the way, and military people will arrive en masse as if this is completely normal. And then they'll ride the rides. (laughs) <laughs> or I went to a football game that was supposedly a normally occurring football game at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Monday. And um, I arrive, and the stadium is empty, save for about maybe 40 people. And it's a giant, regular-sized football stadium. And then at um, halftime, you know, a massive crowd appears. It's as if they couldn't quite get the timing right. And um, one time I arrived in another uh, amusement park, and there was no one there. And my handler mistakenly said to me, they didn't know we were coming. 
Ah. Because it was a last minute change to the schedule. So and she was I said apologizing her, for that, yeah, letting exactly. on the and truth. I said, I said, what do you mean they didn't know we were coming? And then she just, you know, turned and walked away because it wasn't, she, you know, she messed up. And apparently they were taking you to factories to show off their industry and so on. You, you talked about a, a laboratory where the workers were just staring at their microscopes. Yeah, which were underneath plastic. That was actually in a hospital where there were also no patients because they told me that all the patients went home before I got there. You know, or the factory I went to, everything, the factory had lost power five minutes before I arrived and all 5,000 workers had to leave. There are American travelers that are just kind of fun-loving American travelers that aren't used to this kind of uh, control who are literally mm-hmm. in prison in North Korea right now, aren't they, for trumped-up charges because they stepped out of bounds as tourists? Yeah, you know, allegedly, yes. Allegedly. Yeah. Didn't you kind of push the limits? Weren't you taking some risks? You know, I was respectful. I'm a, a respectful traveler, and when I go places, I'm conscientious about the mores and laws and And I think a big part of being a good traveler is taking seriously your role as an ambassador for your country. Mm -hmm. And I never want to give Americans a bad name or women or, you know, any of the different demographics Mm -hmm. I represent. And that's true everywhere. And in North Korea, I took risks in terms of trying to take more pictures than I was probably allowed to. But I was also really sensitive about getting my handlers in trouble because I'll leave that country and they could, you know, not just them, but their entire families could be jeopardized. Because if you do something, it reflects poorly on them because they didn't do their work. Now, you took what what photographs are okay and what photographs are not okay? Well, you know, it's debatable and it's arbitrary, quite frankly. So they'll tell you that uh, you can take photos of anything you want to in Pyongyang because it's Mm -hmm. their showcase city. But then on the other hand, I would go to take a picture of a line and they would say, nope, no, no, no. And then outside of Pyongyang, you can't take a picture of anything without asking permission first. How does Pyongyang compare to the rest of the country? It's interesting, actually, when you first land at the airport and you're driving on the prescribed road that they take you on, It's, you know, a myriad of tall, modern buildings that would look like any city. And I actually had thought to myself, wow, this is like a completely normal place. I'm so surprised. But as you spend more time there and you drive on, you know, some of the less populated roads and so forth, Pyongyang has its less rich areas like any other place. It's not the gleaming showcase city it appears at first. It's largely dilapidated old buildings. I sort of the rule of thumb was if it was brand new and looked like a nice building, no one lived there and it was empty. And if it was a dilapidated old building, that's where most normal people lived. And then outside of Pyongyang, uh, it's, you know, complete third world. It's as bad as any place in Africa or in India. I noticed the uh, bride and groom on, on the cover of the book are both proudly wearing pins with the uh, supreme leader, Kim yeah, Jong-un, Yeah, that's on it. the law. By law, you have to do that. Everybody wears a pin of the leader? Everybody wears a pin. When I was there a couple years ago, it was the father and the grandfather, Kim Il-sung and Kim yeah. Jong-il. But I understand they issued new pins with Kim Jong-un since now he's been officially conferred as the chairman of the party. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Wendy Simmons. Her book is My Holiday in North Korea, the funniest slash worst place on earth. Wendy, I could talk to you all day about this. We're almost out of time, but just very quickly, what kind of advertising did you see? What kind of street art propaganda? Was there an anti-American feel to it? Uh, what, what sort of uh, posters were around? So propaganda is everywhere. It's ubiquitous from stamps to giant statues everywhere. And it's it's of two types. It's either proselytizing the greatness of the great leaders in the form of massive statues and them smiling at the side of volcanoes and just generally being great, or it is blatantly anti-American. 
And by that, it will be, you know, like a North Korean soldier crushing an American soldier, stepping on him and killing him, you know, or a rocket blasting into America. So it's one of the two lovely types. You call the prevailing style fancy tacky. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Everything is very fancy and tacky. It's, you know, it's very elaborate and ornate and it's ostentatious, but it's like cheap and awful. Cheap, awful, so, and ostentatious. Like the decorations yeah. <laughs> at, a, at, a, at a staged wedding party where you got little yeah, panda bears yeah. in, on top and of the cake. And it's the same everywhere <laughs> because they don't have any manufacturing or any trading partners. And so really, uh, you know, everything is from 1950 and 1960 or manufactured, you know, in one place in North Korea. So everywhere you go, everything looks the same. So it's the same chandeliers everywhere you go, the same chairs everywhere you go, the same, everyone's wearing the same clothing. So everything looks the same every place you go. And you need to bring a flashlight so you can properly see it. Right. And there's no lights anywhere. It's, I mean, I would get off the elevator in my hotel, and it would be abject darkness. I mean, you couldn't see your hand in front of you. I want to go here. i, I got to check this out. <laughs> now, now, after all of this experience, let's finish with just, did you get any glimpses of humanity, any intimacy, any empathy for people that you saw? Was there any warmth anywhere? It came in flashes, and, you know, it came largely through my handlers. You know, there was moments, for example, I was in a park one day, and a ton of children who were not yet in the children's party, which meant that they hadn't started really the official indoctrination process, you know, they saw me, and they came running to me, and they were so excited, and they were screaming hello and goodbye, and that was highly, highly unusual, because even children, when you see them, as you alluded to before, won't even acknowledge you or say hello or look at you, Mm. and... I had little private jokes with my fresh handler, you know, where she would catch me being sarcastic and crack up. And I had experiences at the DMZ with uh, one day I had my instant camera. And when I took a photo of one of the generals and he saw his, you know, his image come to life on the film, you know, he had a real genuine smile come. And then all the older soldiers lined up to get their picture taken. So there was moments, but largely, you know, they're, they don't like you. They've been told that you're bad and... There's a lot of animosity, and, you know, hopefully this is the way that those barriers get broken down is the travel. So that foreboding no-man's land, the DMZ, that's the zone between North and South Korea, is that right? Correct. Yeah. It's supposedly the most dangerous border on Earth, and I found sort of the warmest people there, ironically, Isn't I Isn't that so. something? And then the delight yeah. and the free spirits of those little kids just waiting to be yeah. tamed and put into yeah. order. <laughs> They'll be ruined any day now. Oh, so. my goodness. <laughs> Wendy yeah, Simmons, yeah. thank you so much for uh, you. sharing your adventure and uh, oh, my pleasure. what a fascinating book you've written. Uh, thank I don't, you I don't so know where much. You, I don't know how you can top this adventure, but uh, <laughs> you, you, you gained some lifetime <laughs> memories there. And let's hope. I that, certainly did. Let's just hope that North Korea can uh, get over their fear and, and learn to engage with the, uh, the rest of this amazing planet. Let's hope. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City and Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul for their help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. Plus, Rick has an app for your mobile phone with detailed walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries, 
For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.